both to those of you in the room and those of you joining in online. It is uh, great to have you with us, and thank you so much for making us a part of your weekend uh, this weekend. We know that's a time commitment. So we're going to start a little bit different today. I have a question that I want you to discuss. So if you're online, we have an online host. They would love to interact with you. If you're an extrovert in the room, this is a great chance for you to make a new friend, right? So you can look around and see who you don't know, and you can go have a conversation with them. Introverts, you should take note of who is looking around right now and find somebody else who has their head down, and that's who you want to talk to, all right? So but this is audience participation. I want you to kind of circle up. And here's my question. If you were going to get a tattoo, what would you get and why would you get that? All right, so find somebody next to you. If you're going to get a tattoo, what would you get? Why would you get it? Go, audience participation. I know some of you are like, I'll never do this. I'm not going to hold you to it. All right, extroverts, you need to let the introvert talk. Make sure you switch. Everybody gets a chance. All right, this is the hardest part is I got to draw your attention back. I know tattoos are still kind of controversial and like, I don't know if we can even ask that question in church, but as someone who has a couple of tattoos... Oh, this did not work as well as it did in first service. They were like ready back with me. As someone who has a couple of tattoos, you have to think about some things before you get a tattoo, right? I had to think about number one thing I had to think about. What body part am I going to put this on and what will that body part look like when I am 90 years old, right? That was my, so I have a pine, I have a pine tree on the top of my inner arm here. I'm pretty sure at 90, it's going to look like a, a shrub, but such is life, I'll have a shrub there, it'll be great. And everybody will ask why, and I'll, it'll be a story. The other thing you have to look, the other thing you have to answer is, is this something I want permanently on my body, right? There's no going back. I mean, you can spend a bunch of money, but you're still going to have a, a remnant of that there. You've got to make sure you get that. Then you've got to figure out, okay, which tattoo artist? Do I want somebody who's really good at shading? Do I want somebody who's really good at line work? Because this, again, permanently, nobody wants to look at your tattoo and be like, that is not what I wanted. Too late, can't really fix it, right? And then you gotta have a story to tell, right? Like, why did you get that? How does it impact your faith and your life? And the other important question that I had to answer, and maybe you have had to answer this or will have to answer this is, will my parents still talk to me after I get the tattoo? So it's still a little tenuous for us. So dad, I know you're online. This part is almost over. We won't talk about it. And the other thing, make sure you know, bad tattoos, just as permanent as good tattoos, right? So I thought for a little humor today, we'd take a look at some bad tattoos, right? Because nobody wants a bad tattoo. This first one, if your artwork looks like my drawing ability, you should not design your own tattoo. I'm just saying. I'll give him some points, clever snail mail. I don't think you're going to like that 10, 15, 20 years from now. I'm just saying. Uh, next one, you need to think about, do you really want your favorite Christmas movie character permanently on your body in full color? I mean, I love Buddy the Elf as much as the next guy. I'm not sure I want to see him on my shoulder every, every morning. All right. 
Uh, details matter. When it comes to tattoos, details matter. So if you, maybe some of you are like, what is that? That is a manual transmission. And if you know how that's supposed to be, it should go one, two, three, four, five, six. So if you're tattooing that on your body, it obviously means something to you. You might want to make sure you put the numbers in the right order. It does matter. All right. And then foreign language tattoos, always a little bit scary. Um, when you're putting something else on your body, if you don't speak that language, this girl says, I asked him what they meant, and he said, it's just a bunch of random Chinese letters, to which I inquired, which ones? And he corrected me saying, no, it says, just a bunch of Chinese letters, right? So she thought she got faith, hope, and love, or something like that in Chinese. That's not what she got at all. And then, always, there's no spell check for your skin. You don't click the button and Google changes it. So always make sure, no regrets, not even one R. Not even one R did that guy regret. All right. Some of you are like, this has gone on way too long. Why are we talking about tattoos in church? Well, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, or if you haven't, this is your first time here checking us out. I'm so glad you came today. Thank you for being here. But we're on week four of a series we have called Scandalous, where we are looking at the radical nature of God's grace all throughout the Old Testament. And in week one, we looked at creation was God's first act of grace. This idea that even creating was an act of grace that God showed to each one of us. Week two, we looked at God desires us even when we are undesirable. And so we looked at some stories where mankind just does some things that aren't great. And God says, no, I still, I still desire you. Last week, we took, to look, took a look at God is faithful when we are faithless. When we don't believe, when we don't trust, when we act in fear, God remains faithful. So as we enter into week four, did you know that God has a tattoo? If you have your Bible or your phones, go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16, and we're going to take a look at what God has permanently put on his body. Isaiah 49, 16 says this, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, see, I have written your name on the palms of my hand, always in my mind is a picture of Jerusalem's walls in ruin. Now, before you start thinking I'm just stretching the meaning of this, I want to unpack that word written a little bit for you. There are two words that could have been used in Hebrew there. We're not going to worry about what those words are, but one word literally means to write or, or script or to print that out. So that's the word that we're looking at. The other one is, is to carve or engrave. So we're not looking at like carving into something. That's what they would have done into wood or stone as they were making that. And so think about this idea of God writing or printing the names of the Israelite tribes or people on his hand. Do you find more comfort knowing if you're an Israelite that God has written your name on his hand and it is permanently there? Or is it more comforting to you to be like, this is really the drawings of a two or three-year-old preschooler who got the markers when mom wasn't around and the exasperated parent has to come in and in two hours they're wiped off think we find much more comfort when we start to think about the idea that those names are permanently written on God's hands. Always before him, the names of the Israelites. 
And this is not the first time that God has told the Israelites, I want your names in front of me. When he gives Moses the instructions about the tabernacle for the priests and what they will wear and what they will take into the Holy of Holies, he gives this instruction in Exodus 28. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the tribes of Israel. Six names will be on each stone arranged in the order of the births of the original sons of Israel. Engrave these names on the two stones in the same way a jeweler engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in settings of gold filigree. Fasten the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as a reminder that Aaron represents the people of Israel. And Aaron will carry these names on his shoulder as a constant reminder whenever he goes before the Lord. So Aaron has this outfit he has to put on when he goes in and there's these two stones that will sit on his shoulders as he walks in as the high priest the one representing Israel to God and right there on those stones are the names of the tribes in God's sight God's people's names in front of him always now I don't know about you but I think if I knew my name was on in front of God's hand that provides encouragement for me provides encouragement for me to know that the Israelite names are before God as he thinks about them However in the context of these verses it brings even more meaning and even more richness If you were here last week you know we talked about the Israelites and God coming down from the mountain speaking the 10 commandments to them then calls Moses back up right and the Israelites get impatient 40 days too long he's not coming back so they make a golden calf Moses comes down loses his mind cuz they made a golden calf broke the 10 commandments God had just given them and then God says no listen Moses I want you to come back up because I'm going to build a tabernacle and I want to make sure you get it all right because I still want to dwell with my people. Even though they disobeyed me, I still want to dwell. I still want to be with them. And if you know much about the Old Testament, we're going to hit the fast forward button, but you're going to see this pattern repeats itself all the way through the entire Old Testament. So these people who are at the base of this mountain who are going to build the tabernacle, they're the ones God led out of slavery in Egypt across the Red Sea, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, fresh bread every day in the, every morning in their front yard. They've got everything, but they continue to disobey God. And God finally says, listen, because of your disobedience, you are not going to be allowed to enter the promised land. Even Moses isn't allowed to enter. And so he says, your sons and your daughters will enter. And he raises up Joshua to lead them into the promised land. But if you know this, Joshua leads them in. And what does Israel disobey or do? They don't trust. They disobey. They don't listen. They don't do what God asked them to do. So they take over the promised land because God's going to be faithful. But there's still consequences to all of that. And then Joshua dies and the judges come up, right? And the judges, so essentially the key phrase of the book of Judges is, and the people did what is right in their own eyes. Has that ever gone well for anybody, right? Like, we're going to do what's right in my eyes. I don't care what it is in your eyes. It's not going to go well, right? So they do this. They end up in trouble. They cry out to God, hey, we're in trouble. Would you come help us? He sends a judge. Every judge he sends has some moral flaw that we'd be like, this guy's our leader? Yes, that's who's going to lead you out. And they lead them out. And then the judge dies. And what does Israel do? What's right in their own eyes? They end up in the same place. That's the cycle of the book of Judges. Just add a bunch of violence. You've read it. All right. So then after that, Israel's like, we want to be like everybody else. 
They literally sound like our teenage children. Everybody else has an iPhone. I want an iPhone. I want to be like everybody else. And God sends the prophet Samuel, and he's like, listen, you don't want a king. You don't want a king. Trust me, you don't want a king. No, we want to be like everybody else has a king. We want a king. So he gives him a king, right? Saul's the first one. Doesn't go so well. He's a little arrogant. Ends up being crazy. Tries to kill David because he thinks he's trying to steal his throne. Doesn't go so great for Israel. Then David becomes king, and we're like, oh, that's a man after God's own heart. Yeah, except he's an adulterer and a murderer. And so you're like, well, this didn't work out great either. And so then his son Solomon takes over. As we keep hitting that fast-forward button through the Old Testament, his son Solomon takes over. This guy builds a temple, and you're like, oh, well, that's pretty good. But he has an insatiable lust for women and has so many wives we've lost count. He brings idolatry to the people of Israel. Then his son takes over, Rehoboam. And let's talk about Rehoboam. He's so bad, he splits the kingdom in half. There's like civil war, so now there's a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And then there's Manasseh. And this is like the all-time low. Manasseh takes the Israelites to worship a false god named Molech, where they literally take their babies as an offering to Molech and put them in a fiery furnace. And we're like, what are you doing? Right? And this is the people of Israel who God is staying faithful to, who God keeps walking alongside. And then there's Ahaz, who just continues to perpetrate the idolatry and the things that happened. And so you get to the prophet Hosea, who's prophesying in Israel during Ahaz's life. And we talked about him last week. His life is lived as an object lesson for the Israelites. So he marries Gomer, who's a prostitute, and she represents the people of Israel, giving themselves over to these false gods and not listening to God, who's been faithful. If you want to know more about that story, you can listen to last week's sermon. But what I want you to see as we walk all the way through this Old Testament, that was really quick, hopefully you kept up. Uh, It's not just the leaders, it's the Israelites. They're idolaters. They're greedy. They're full of lust. They disobey God. And as a result, they end up back in captivity. Slaves to the Egyptians, now slaves to the Babylonians. And I want you to listen to the words that Isaiah speaks to them in their captivity in Babylon in Isaiah 43. But dear family of Jacob, Israel, you refuse to ask for my help. You have grown tired of me, O Israel. You've not brought me sheep or goats for burnt offerings. You have not honored me with sacrifices, though I have not burdened and wearied you with the requests for grain offerings and frankincense. You've not brought me fragrant calamus or pleased me with the fat from sacrifices. Instead, you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your faults. Imagine. You're in captivity. God comes and speaks directly to you and he's like, you didn't even ask me for help. I'm not demanding these things of you, but I'm letting you know I'm here to ask. Your sins are now a burden for me. Not a burden like shame on you, but a burden like I'm bearing the weight. I'm tired of your mistakes and the things you've done. He goes on to say in Isaiah 64, 6, we're all infected with and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. 
I say, listen, your sins are just sweeping. They've swept you so far away from God, they've swept you back into Babylonian captivity. And even the good things you do, they're like filthy rags. And that word filthy rags is really a pretty intense Old Testament word. And when he uses that word, he's not talking about like we wiped off the countertop and the rag has some crumbs on it. And we're like, oh, that needs to go in the dirty, dirty clothes. We need to wash that. No, this word used here is your acts are like used menstrual garments. Even the good things you do. Because you're not doing them for the right reason. You're not doing them with a repentant heart. You're doing them to manipulate your way through life. I want you to hear this, and if you take nothing else out of today's sermon, don't miss this. God loves you because of God. We look at those verses, and we realize God's love has absolutely nothing to do with my good deeds. It has nothing to do with the bad things I've done, or the mistakes I've made, or all the great things I've done. God loves you and God loves me because of his character. Because his nature is a nature filled with grace. And it's his love that compels him to do these things. You might remember we read from Isaiah 43 earlier about God being weary and burdened of their sin. I want you to listen to God's words in the next verse about how he's going to respond. Now, I want you to remember, this is the Old Testament. And this is what God says he's going to do because Israel has wearied and burdened them. I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my sake. And I will never think of them again. I will blot out your sins for my sake and never think of them again. God is essentially saying, I will forget your sins, but I will never forget your name. Israel, I tattooed that on my hand. But I forget your sins. I want you to stop for just a minute and, say, and think, is that the God you believe in? Or are you like some of us who struggle to forgive ourselves and so we're pretty sure God has a giant book and in that book he can flip to our name and then there's just page after page after page of the mistakes we've made. That's not grace. We think there's no way God remembers our name because he's got to remember all the sins that we've committed. That's not the God of the Old or the New Testament. He's the God who looks at us and he says, you're Jason, my child, and all my sins are blotted out because of who God is, not because of who I am. That's Satan's lie, by the way. When we believe God's got that book with our sins listed in it, it's Satan's lie to us because his goal is to destroy us. And if he can bear, weigh us down with that burden that's not true about us, then he can tear us apart. But listen to what God says to the Israelites in captivity in chapter 49. Sing for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. 
For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on them in their suffering. Yet Jerusalem says, the Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. Never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child she's born? But even if that's possible, I would never forget you. See, I've written your name on the palm of my hands. Always in my mind is a picture of Jerusalem's walls in ruin. So this is God speaking, but he's speaking for two different groups of people here. So he starts out saying, and he's been telling them for nine chapters at this point in Hosea, or Isaiah, I am bringing a servant who is going to come and lead you out of Babylonian captivity, who's going to set you free, who's going to provide comfort for you. And Israel's response is, God's forgotten us. We're here forever. Maybe we should have obeyed and maybe God ran out of patience. And God literally is like, never. Think about the imagery. A mom nursing a baby. I don't think you forget that's happening. Never had that experience. I'm just guessing you don't forget your babies there in the middle of the process. And God says, but even if you could, I got your name right here. Because you're my child. Because you'll always be. Because God loves you because of God. God's, your name tattooed on God's hand means God's grace is permanent. We talked about this a little bit earlier. I do have two tattoos. Technically, I could have them removed. I could go through the pain. I could spend the money, but there's still going to be a scar. I'm still going to know they're there. When I decided to get them, I knew they were permanent. And so I chose wisely about where to place them. I figured out what the story was going to be about when people ask what they were and how that had impacted my faith. God knew the same thing about the Israelites when he wrote their names on his hand. He chose to put his names on the palm of his hand so they're right in front of his face. He knew their story. He knew the lives that they would lead. And he chose to do it anyway. Listen to what God says about our mistakes because I don't want you to miss this because we forget this so often. Isaiah 44. I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I've scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Do you ever sit outside on a nice spring or summer day and just watch the clouds go across the sky? Maybe if somebody else is there, you try to figure out what shape they make, and you're like, that cloud looks like this. And they're like, are you nuts? That doesn't look anything at all like that. And you watch that cloud move and shift and change shape as it moves across the sky. And when that cloud gets over here, you can turn back to look for another cloud. But when you turn back here, that cloud's gone. And that cloud will forever be gone. God says, that's what your sin is like. As it passes in front of me, it's gone. I paid the price to set you free. To the Israelites, he's saying, I paid the price to set you free from Babylon. To us, he's saying, Jesus paid the price set you free from your sin. My grace is permanent. Your sin is temporary. Not only is God's grace permanent, God's grace is embodied. 
God says, your name is written on my hand. What do we do with our hands? One of the things we do with our hands is we use them to embrace each other, to provide comfort. I don't know what it's like for you when you get home, your spouse, your significant other, a kid's had a bad day. Maybe you're one of the kids in the audience, you're like, yeah, I come home sometimes, I've had bad days. I'm not going to tell my friends because I want to hug, but I don't want anybody to know that I like my parents, right? So I don't admit that. But we wrap our arms around our spouses, around our kids. We let them know we love them. We embrace them, and that embrace provides comfort. Think about it as a coach. What do you do with your hand? A kid comes off the field, you give him a high five, tell him a great job. When we greet each other, right? We don't like rub elbows. We did that for a couple years in COVID. It didn't work. We like to shake hands. It's a connection point. It's a touch that matters. Our bodies matter. And I think it matters that God sent Jesus in bodily form to walk among us. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1.3, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they're troubled, we'll be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. God's gracious character compelled him to do what no other God would ever do. To step out of heaven and to make his home among us. Think about what Jesus did with his hands. He touched the unlovable. He healed the social outcasts. He welcomed the sinner. And he stretched them out and let the Romans drive nails through them to show us he loved us. Our bodies matter. And it matters that the Israelites' names are written on God's hand. Lastly, God's grace gives us hope. See, God's grace focuses on what's coming, not on what is or what has been. If you're an Israelite living in Babylonian captivity, there's not a lot of hope. But God says this in Isaiah 49.6, You will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring salvation to the ends of of the earth. To these rebellious people, God says, I'm sending a servant who's going to draw everyone to me. That light's going to shine. It's not just going to shine through him. It's going to shine through you. And I'm going to draw all people of earth to me because of you. He's looking forward to when Jesus comes, but he's reminding them of the covenant he made with Abraham because what did he say? I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so you'll be a blessing. That's been our call from the beginning. But our hope is that Jesus has come and that he will come again. Think about these words written to people who were enslaved. Kings and queens will serve you and care for your needs. They will bow down to the earth before you and lick the dust from your feet. Then you will know that I'm the Lord. Those who trust in me will be put to shame. God says this to people who are literally enslaved. The Israelites are probably like, I think Isaiah's lost it. But God says, that's your future. 
kings and queens will bow to you. Not because of you, because of me and because of the hope you have. One more time, Isaiah 51. Look at the skies above and gaze down on the earth below. For the skies will disappear like smoke and the earth will wear out like a piece of clothing. The people of the earth will die like flies, but my salvation lasts forever. My righteous rule will never end. For those of us who say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe you are who you said you are. That's our future. God's righteous rule will never end. We will live with him in perfect harmony And grace, it's God's grace that directs us to that future. God will be faithful to this promise because God loves you because of God. God loves me because of God. Church, this means God's grace is not about what we have or have not done. God's grace is about who God is. What God has done and what God will do. I want you to sit in that for just a moment. God's grace is not about your past. It's not about your worst moment. It's about what God did, is doing, and will do. How does that change the way you see yourself. See, I think way too many of us spend way too much time focused on our worst moments. And God's forgotten those. But he knows your name. How could that truth change someone else's life you know? So one of the really cool things about being in ministry for a little while now is I get an opportunity to coach young ministry leaders every once in a while. And started doing this a couple months ago and I met with someone this week over Zoom who is uh, in their 20s, ministry leader, up and starting and really having a lot of self-doubt and a lot of struggle. And so as we talked, I got to hear their story a little bit. This person is of a different ethnicity than we are. And they grew up hearing that if they didn't do these certain things, their life was going to be a failure. And they looked at me through the screen and said, and I think in some ways, I think my parents still think my life is a failure. Because I'm not going to make as much money as my siblings do. I'm not going to be who they wanted me to be. I didn't graduate college and I feel like maybe I'm never going to amount to anything because I don't have that piece of paper on a wall. When people come to us in those moments, what are our words back? Do we say, well, have you ever thought about going back to college? Or do we remind them of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 that says, you are God's masterpiece. Do you remind them of verses like Isaiah 49, 16 that says, your name is written on God's hand. That's who you are. 
Parents, I get it. You can ask my kids after church. I mess this up all the time. But when our kids come, are we using words to comfort them, to love them, to build them up, to draw them towards Jesus, to remind them who they are? Or are we putting more weight and more expectation, more rules, maybe as we heard in the video, on them? This is God's grace. I think that's what God meant in 2 Corinthians 1. He comforts us in our troubles so we can comfort others. When they're troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. That's grace. That's who God wants us to be. Why? Because God loves you and God loves me and God loves our kids because of God. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, your grace just doesn't make sense sometimes. We know what we've done. We know the mistakes we've made. We know what we've done that nobody else even knows about. And yeah, your word makes it pretty clear you've forgotten those things. Not because we did so much good you can't remember the bad, but because you chose to forget them. Because you sent Jesus to die for our sins. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see those around us who are struggling to believe in your scandalous grace. And God, then that you would give us words to say as we offer encouragement back to them. And we remind them how you see them. We remind them that they're loved that your grace is bigger than their biggest mistake. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for doing what only you could do on that cross. We pray all this in your name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We want to give you a chance to respond. The team is going to sing a song in just a minute, but if, if you need somebody to pray with you, if you're holding on to something that's keeping you from experiencing God's grace, we we'll have people on the side of the room who would love nothing more than to pray with you about that. To support and encourage and love on you in that way. Maybe you're like, I've accepted God's grace, but I've never been baptized and that video struck a chord with me. I'd love to know more about that. And maybe you thought that 35 minutes ago and you forgot about it now. This is your reminder. Scan that QR code. We'd love to talk to you about taking that next step of faith. If you're here today and you call Great Oaks home, one of the ways we respond to God's word and to God's grace is in acts of gratitude and generosity, and that includes financial. And so if you came prepared to do that today, there's three ways to give. If you're a visitor here today, we're not here for your money. We're just glad you're here. And when you're ready, I want you to stand and sing at the top of your lungs because God loves you and there's not one thing you can do to change that.